Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, October 13th, and I hope you'll join us for a conversation today about the fighting in Israel and Gaza. It is a complicated and difficult story, and we have two guests to take us through it. One is a former U.S. ambassador to Syria with deep knowledge of the region. Robert S. Ford is the former ambassador to Syria for the United States, and he will join us in our first segment until 10 a.m., where we will then head to Washington to talk with our weekly guest, former Congressman Bob Ney, about the Israeli-Hamas situation. Uh, We'll also get an update on the Speaker of the House situation from Bob. We will be joined by Seven Days reporter Ken Picard on his cover story about UVM research on climate change. Uh, And lastly, I hope you'll stick around the entire show because uh, we'll be joined by an Israeli resident uh, who originally from Michigan who lives on a kibbutz uh, near Tel Aviv who will tell us of her firsthand experience in uh, since the Hamas attack last Saturday. Her name is Ella Butter. She is a lawyer and a social worker, and she will be joining us at 1030. We will open the phones every chance we get and hope you will call in. The number is 244-1777. The email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. If you're listening to the news and reading it at all, you know that six days of Israeli airstrikes have left more than 300,000 Palestinians in the Gaza Strip homeless. Israel has warned the United Nations that North Gaza should be evacuated immediately. The United Nations says that's impossible. Israel is retaliating for the bloodiest attack on its country in 50 years and pummeling Gaza with a ferocity not seen in past conflicts. It has cut off vital supplies to the coastal territory, home to some 2 million people. Uh, Israel's military says that it is hitting places used by Hamas, which controls Gaza, including mosques, houses, and other outwardly civilian locations. The retaliatory strikes began after Hamas terrorists broke through the border wall with Israel on Saturday morning and attacked towns, kibbutz, and military bases, killing more than 1,200 people, most of them civilians. Before our first break, uh, a couple of caveats. This is a very complicated issue. It is emotional. It is filled with history, religion, war, and tragedy. I am not an expert on this subject, and I no doubt will get something wrong. I have done the reading, and we have guests coming up who care deeply about the region and about trying to find solutions. There is no political agenda here, just an effort to listen and learn and face this very difficult issue as best we can. So I hope you'll stay tuned Uh, After the break, we're going to go to former U.S. Ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, who will join us. But a couple of glossary issues. Here's a couple of things I urge you to do. First, if you're on the Internet, uh, Google the Middle East and get yourself a map. Uh, It really helps to have a map in front of you to understand where these places are located. It's also helpful to understand that Israel is a country formed out of World War II in the wake of the Holocaust to give Jewish refugees a homeland. The United States and England were very much a part of making that happen. Happen. 
Palestine is a state recognized by many countries in the United Nations, but not all, some who refuse to recognize the existence of Israel. Gaza, or the Gaza Strip, is a narrow piece of land that refers to land wedged between Israel and Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea. Gaza City, also called Gaza, is its largest city. Hamas is a political organization that controls the Gaza Strip. It has a military wing. It is Hamas that launched the attack on Israel. The word Hamas is Arabic for zeal, and its military wing, the Qassam Brigade, are designated terrorists by Israel and most Western nations, including the United States. The IDF is the Israeli Defense Forces. Israel's national military made up of ground forces, navy, and air force. It runs a conscription model with most adults over 18 required to do military service. Okay, that's our glossary of terms. We are going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Robert Ford, the former U.S. ambassador to Syria. And he will join us after the break. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll be right back on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and we are taking on the uh, issue of Israel and Hamas today. And our first guest is the U.S. the former U.S. ambassador to Syria. His name is Robert Ford. He was deputy U.S. ambassador to Iraq from 2008 to 2010. He has also served as ambassador to Algeria. He is a career foreign service officer and has received the Secretary Service Award, the U.S. State Department's highest honor. He received the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award for his defense of human rights in Syria and is currently a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, where he writes about developments in the area. He joins us now. Welcome, Ambassador Ford. Thank you. Nice to be with you this morning. It's We're grateful uh, for you to make the time. So uh, you may have heard my caveat at the beginning uh this is an issue, and I know you're so more familiar with this than the rest of us, but this is an issue that we're going to approach uh, with uh, – we're going to try to listen. We're going to understand that we're going to get things wrong, but uh, to not take it on and talk about it I think is kind of a dereliction of duty. So uh, how are you approaching this in, in your world right now? Tell us what what's going on from your perspective. Well, first, Kevin, I have to say I'm retired, and so I'm watching it at a great distance from my home in Maine. Um, second, uh, I, I'm just crying, really. It's, it's so tragic, um, the murder of so many Israelis, hundreds and hundreds. I think the death toll now is up over 1,200 in Israel. Uh, the murder of so many innocent people, and then at the same time, uh, the killing of so many Palestinian civilians, and I think, again, the death toll is up over 1,200 as of today, this morning. Um, it's just a tragedy on all sides, and that's the first thing I look at. Is I, I just, I, I, it, it's just so sad. Yeah, um, yeah, and and it's and it's. We're already in the United States, uh, I don't want to go right to the politics, but we're already in the United States breaking down politically. You know, there's demonstrations on campuses and 
you know, one party is condemning the other and, and, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to, the rhetoric seems to be very high at the moment. And we can only hope that we can sort of get past political rhetoric and let the folks in your business, career foreign service officers, diplomats and others, uh, sort of, you know, get involved here and try to achieve some sort of ceasefire but it, what are your what what are your fellow career diplomats and career foreign service officers what what is the goal here what what should be the goal of our state department and other peace loving people well i think first of all and uh president biden and uh secretary of state blinken and uh, today secretary of defense lloyd austin have all made clear um the american commitment to uh, the state of Israel, the existence of the state of Israel, um, and the absolute right of Israelis to live in peace and security. So that's my first point. And I yeah. think uh, you will hear American officials uh, emphasize that over and over again. Uh, second, I hope that American officials are saying two key things to the Israelis. Um, the first is that going after a terrorist organization like Hamas is perfectly understandable. And um, if it increases the security of Israeli citizens, um, then military operations may be useful. But at the same time, there are two caveats. And I hope this is this is a nuanced message, but diplomacy is often a matter of nuance. As you said in your introduction, it's complicated. So there are two factors here. First is respect for international law and international humanitarian law. Putting civilians under siege is against international humanitarian law, according to the Geneva Conventions. Full stop. The American officials who talk about uh, uh, an international order dominated by uh, international law, where countries respect international law, American officials are at risk of helping one state go rogue, um, which in fact undermines the American effort to promote uh, respect for international law worldwide. So I, I think there will be a nuance there, and, and I've already seen it a little bit in Secretary Blinken's comments about Israel needing to respect international law and international humanitarian law. So that's the first point. The second point is, that Israel itself, if it launches a massive land invasion into Gaza, which it appears it's going to do, um, Israel itself is going to suffer a lot of casualties. Um, and at the same time, they will inflame regional opinion against Israel. And we've already seen that today. Today is Friday in the Middle East. It's the day when Muslims gather in mosques to pray. There have been large demonstrations in countries like Jordan and uh, Egypt, and um, this is actually not going to help the cause of peace either. And so as the Israelis contemplate their next steps, they need to think about um, how to respect international law in their military operations, and second, um, how to measure advantages on the ground against Thomas, against Israeli casualties, and uh, how regional opinion so important to expanding peace, um, how regional opinion is going to react to what the Israelis are doing. 
there is a, a, a reaction, and I, I don't know that if it's just an American thing uh, in our DNA, but I know that there are hundreds of thousands of people in this country who would be impatient with what you just said, and and their their re, their reaction, their response would be pave the place over, um, root out all of them, and uh, send them out of the country and and make Gaza just part of Israel. Just do it. Bite the bullet, and uh, international law be damned, and 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 the niceties of of diplomacy be damned. Um, certainly, and uh, there are some voices saying that in places as high up as the United States Senate. Right. Um, and all I can say to that is that um, that's an emotional feel-good response, but it's quite impractical. And if America wants to have a world in which international law and international humanitarian law are respected, you can't undermine those laws. Uh, with a military operation in Gaza. Just to give you an exact example of what I'm talking about, Russia invaded Ukraine, another act of terrible brutality, and by any standards here we use in the United States, an illegal attack against Ukraine and, and the state sovereignty of Ukraine, the right of Ukraine to exist as a country. And yet we have had terrible difficulty mobilizing countries on the African continent, in Latin America and South America, and in Asia, to rally behind the Ukrainians. All of the, most of the countries in what we would call the Southern Hemisphere um, have been very reluctant to support Ukraine in the United States. Why? Because they criticize the United States for having double standards, so that it's fine to uphold international law and international humanitarian law when it comes to Ukraine, but when it comes to other cases, in this case, the Palestinians, the Americans are very soft on it. And so they say, you Americans are hypocrites. Don't talk to us about how your foreign policy is so fair and just. We will not follow you. And that there have been numerous statements like that coming from various countries around the world. We have to be careful about this. If you want to be consistent, be consistent. Yeah, well... Okay. Uh, so let's, now let's go back, if we could, in history to 1947 and 48. Uh, Israel was created in those years, uh, at the hand really of, of England and the United States that went to the UN and we had the power to do this back then. Can you take us back into history and talk about the creation of Israel? And how and what that did to that region, and how those uh, those scars, rem- emotional scars, remain today. In very brief, sure. Um, after the murder of over six million Jews in, in uh, the Nazi uh, Holocaust, um, there was a push from um, the uh, different corners of the of um, the political spectrum, both Jews and, and uh, non-Jewish people, um, to find a place of refuge for uh, literally um, the survivors of the Holocaust. There had already been a statement issued by the British government in 1917 uh, that Palestine should be a homeland uh, for Jews worldwide. 
And so building on that, uh, the United Nations passed a, uh, a resolution, the brand new United Nations uh, passed a resolution saying, uh, dividing um, what had been the British colony of Palestine into two parts. Um, the Arab states neighboring the brand new state of Israel rejected that Security Council resolution and launched an, an attack. And uh, the Israelis defended themselves and um, eventually forced the Arabs into a sort of a ceasefire, not peace, a ceasefire. Um, and that is the origin of the conflict. The Arab states between 1949 and uh, 1979, none of the Arab states recognized the state of Israel's right to exist. The Egyptians were the first to do so, a big change from Egypt and uh, then President Anwar Sadat. And uh, through um, American-led efforts in many cases, Norway also tried, um, uh, other Arab states came to sign peace agreements and or normalization agreements with the state of Israel. And so Jordan followed in 1994 during the administration of Bill Clinton. And then um, during the administration of Donald Trump, uh, several more joined um, and, and formally opened diplomatic relations with Israel, including um, the very rich Persian oil Gulf state of the United Arab Emirates, um, Morocco in North Africa, and um, the small island state of Bahrain um, next to Saudi Arabia. I, I, what's particularly interesting about the case of Bahrain is Saudi Arabia is very influential with the government of Bahrain, and I doubt the Bahrainis would have signed that normalization agreement, opening an embassy in uh, Israel, the Israelis opening an embassy in Bahrain. I doubt that could have happened without the approval of the government of Saudi Arabia. And in fact, uh, just in the last year, the Biden administration has made a real effort to get Saudi Arabia also to formally acknowledge Israel's right to exist formally and uh, to open diplomatic relations. And and then now, now let's go to Gaza. There is a place mm-hmm. in the world on a map called the Gaza Strip, and yep. it is not controlled and governed by Israel. Uh, can you take us through some of that history, and then we'll get to sure. why the why Hamas attacked Israel? So the Gaza Strip is actually leftover of uh, this nineteen forty eight war I mentioned, where um, uh, the Egyptian army, in this case, came across the Sinai and um, was attacking into Israel, and they captured the Gaza Strip um, and and managed um, to hold on to it. Um, but then the Israelis captured it in 1967. And as part of the negotiations between uh, then Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, the one I mentioned, and the Israeli government uh, at the time under um, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, um, the Israelis agreed to withdraw from Gaza in a staged uh, step-by-step fashion, which the Israelis did. The Israelis uprooted uh, settlements that were in Gaza, and they turned over the civil administration of the Gaza Strip uh, to uh, the Palestinians, the Egyptians did not want to try to return 
Egyptian rule to the Gaza Strip. The Egyptians were happy to stay back. And at the border of Sinai, a place called Rafa, which uh, listeners who have maps can find Rafa on the map there, that is the border crossing between Egypt and the Gaza Strip. Um, and so there was, it was left to a Palestinian administration initially under the uh, Palestinian Authority, although elections in 2006 uh, brought Hamas to power in elections. That was during the time of uh, U.S. President George W. Bush. So um, in a sense, the Gaza Strip has had a kind of a separate identity, separate from both Israel and separate from Egypt, Palestinian, in other words. Okay. Uh, I, I'm going to take a risk here and, and try to describe Hamas as I'm trying to going to try to make an analogy, and I'm I've thought this for the last few days about the uh, Irish Republican Army. Uh, Hamas seems to be a political organization, uh, but it also has a military wing uh, that 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 is armed and funded. And it was that military wing that attacked Israel. Do, is, does that analogy make any sense? On a certain level, it does. Um, both organizations um, had political sides to them, um, but both organizations were also terrorists. But right. The level of what Hamas did to uh, Israeli civilians last weekend far exceeds anything the Irish Republican Army did against Great Britain. Right. Um, and I think that's really important to bear in mind. Um, the scale of what happened uh, to the Israelis last weekend is way beyond what the IRA ever did uh, to the British. But they're, both of them have political wings. I have to say here, Kevin, it's not clear to me at all that the political wing of Hamas, which is not in the Gaza Strip, um, the political leadership has been in places like uh, Doha, uh, the capital of the Persian Gulf state of Qatar. Uh, it's not clear to me that those political people of Hamas um, control direct what the military people inside the Gaza Strip, uh, the Hamas military wing. It's not clear that the political side controls what the military wing does, the terrorist wing. I mean, the whole organization is terrorist. I should be careful there. Um, right, right. So that um, the who's in control, um, it looks to me, frankly, um, sitting where I am, that the the so-called military side of Hamas is is the one that is dominating the organization's actions. And the and the the political leaders of Hamas are in other countries, basically hiding out because uh, to be in Hamas. puts them under threat of assassination by by Israel's uh, uh, defense forces, right? Yes. Uh, In short, absolutely. Yeah. The Israelis, um, in in general, have shown a very good uh, intelligence set of capabilities. And and so the Hamas people, um, for the most part, um, don't dare live near where the state of Israel can reach them, or they, they travel to places where... It would cause the Israelis great political difficulty with host governments were they to assassinate the Hamas people on host government territory. For example, sometimes the Hamas people visit Turkey. Um, But for the Israelis to carry out an assassination operation on Turkey would infuriate the Turkish government, and the Israelis have to consider the cost-benefit 
of such an operation. Ambassador Ford, so here we are. Israel is has warned that uh, that a million people should uh, evacuate northern Gaza. Uh, it's pretty clear that they are preparing for a ground attack on Gaza. Uh, where are we right at the moment? You, there's no way that you can get. I mean, maybe you could describe the lifestyle in Gaza. There's no way a million people can evacuate that place. Maybe you could tell us what Gaza is like to live in right now. Well, I've never been inside the Gaza Strip, so I'm I'm not in a good position to explain that to your to your listeners. But I would say this: the Gaza Strip is roughly double the size of Washington D.C., um, and there are a bit over two million people who live in this very densely populated little space. Um, they can't the the borders are with Israel on two sides, that is to say to the east and the south, Mediterranean is to the north, Mediterranean Sea, and then the Egyptians are to the west at this Rafa border crossing that I talked about. Um, people in Gaza can't get out right now because the Egyptians have closed the Rafa border crossing, and in fact, the Israelis bombed it a few days ago um, while Palestinians were trying to get out. But the, the Egyptians, in any case, said we're not going to let large numbers of people through. And, of course, on the Israeli side, the Hamas terrorists actually tore down uh, the main border crossing uh, at a place called Eretz. And the Israeli army, with difficulty, has reestablished control over um, the border there. Um, but they're also not letting Palestinians out. And so the Israeli demand and the Israeli warning uh, that uh, approximately 1.1 million civilians in Gaza need to move essentially to the western side of the, the Gaza Strip, closer to the Egyptian side, um, is both hard to implement because it's very hard logistically to move 1.1 million people in 24 hours, especially when you have um, neighborhoods that have been severely damaged by uh, Israeli intense Israeli bombing, um, and then where are they to go? They'll simply be more jam-packed into this smaller space. So um, I, I, there's a, I want to go back to what I was saying about international law and international humanitarian law. The Geneva Conventions prohibit the forced displacement of civilians. I want to say that again so your listeners hear it. The Geneva Conventions forbid the forced displacement of civilian population. So uh, it's hard to argue that what the Israelis are doing is consistent with international law and international humanitarian law, and therefore they are inconsistent with an American policy which says we, the United States, stand for international law and stand for respect of international humanitarian law. That is the essential crux of the issue today. And so in the next few days, Israeli tanks and planes are going to invade Gaza, <clears throat> already a place with little electricity, uh, running water, etc. Uh, I know you're not a military planner, but I read there was a piece in the New York Times op-ed page yesterday that said that Israel should beware because this could be a trap uh, for its troops uh, can you talk more about what that might mean? Um, sure. 
in a little more context for your listeners, in 2006, Israel was dragged into a war in the north of Israel um, against a different Iranian-backed terrorist group called Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah. And the Israelis actually entered into uh, Lebanon, and there was intense house-to-house fighting in towns in southern Lebanon. And the Israelis suffered many, many casualties. Um, The Hezbollah fighters essentially brought the Israelis to a standstill in this house-to-house fighting. Uh, Of course, lots and lots and lots of Bolaterras and lots of Lebanese civilians were killed in this. Um, And eventually the Israelis withdrew back into Israel proper. Um, Those same Hezbollah fighters experienced in house-to-house fighting both in the 2006 war against Israel and then more recently, um, Hezbollah fighters have had a big role in the Syrian civil war next door in Syria. Those Hezbollah fighters have been training Hamas fighters, training them in Syria and training them in Lebanon. Don't know if the Hamas fighters will be at the relatively high level of these Hezbollah fighters, these Hezbollah terrorists. Um, But in any case, um, we can expect some pretty heavy um, uh, house-to-house fighting. And this is problematic for the Israelis on on two levels. First, be a lot of Israeli casualties, as I mentioned earlier in the program. Um, and second, the images that are going to come out of Gaza are going to be pretty appalling um, in terms of civilian casualties, and that's both going to hurt the reputation of Israel, and it's also going to inflame uh, public opinion in Arab countries against Israel. So at the same time, we're trying to expand um, diplomatic relations between Israel and Arab states and to expand normalization of Israel within the region, um, this invasion of Gaza is going to work at cross-purposes. It'll be really important for Israel, and it is Israel's decision, to weigh the costs versus the benefits of this operation. Uh, And what are we saying, the United States, what are we, we, you touched on it at the beginning of the show, but I think it bears repeating, we we, uh, give Israel uh, billions of dollars each year to fund its military. Um, about four billion. About four billion. What are Annual. we? What is Anthony Blinken, who is in the region right now? What is he saying to Benjamin Netanyahu, the leader of the Israeli government? Well, I, I can only go by press reports. Sure. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm long retired uh, from the State Department, but I think the Secretary has said several things. One. We support Israel's right to exist and for its people to live in safety and security. Um, and so it's, that's the core message, as it should be. Um, second, um, if you must do an operation in Gaza, it's your decision. But please be aware of the uh, international legal ramifications, the ones I was just talking about, and be aware of um, how neighboring countries are going to react to this. Um, they were getting really close on Saudi Arabia opening uh, relations, formal diplomatic relations um, with Israel, and all of that has been sort of shoved aside now and put on the back burner and stalled. And and was the so attack? Sorry, so let's go back. Um, the attack itself is it is it too simplistic to say that Hamas launched the attack in order to forestall? 
this normalization with Saudi Arabia effort that we were behind? I think the timing has much to do with the progress that was being made on that front. There wasn't a deal. There were still some tough negotiations, particularly with respect to um, demands from Saudi Arabia of the United States, not of Israel, but demands of the United States from Saudi Arabia. Um, but it was making real progress. And I think the timing um, had something to do with the Hamas desire to derail that. And in this, Hamas has succeeded. It may be a Pyrrhic victory. It may be one that um, Hamas won a sort of a tactical victory, but strategically it is, it's going to lose very badly. That's easy to imagine. Um, but I think that's, that was what the Hamas, uh, that was certainly one of their objectives. Uh, Ambassador, how did this happen uh, with all the money that we give to Israel for its security apparatus and its intelligence services. And they have a legendary intelligence service. Apparently Hamas disabled uh, uh, monitors and other uh, things at the border uh, so that uh, Israel's uh, surveillance capability was disabled for several hours. I find that shocking. Uh, how did how did Israel's intelligence services miss this? And for that matter, how did the CIA miss this, in fact, if that's in fact what happened? Well, I think the first thing for listeners to understand is um, that the real world of intelligence, and I was in diplomacy rather than intelligence, but certainly worked a lot with colleagues from the CIA and other countries' intelligence services over over the decades that I was in the State Department. Um, first thing for listeners to understand is intelligence is itself a human activity, and uh, all humans um, are liable to error and mistakes, and that's what's happened in this case. Uh, there is no such thing as a perfect uh, intelligence uh, agency or perfect knowledge of what the adversary is going to do. That's maybe in Hollywood movies, uh, but not in real life. And so the IA makes mistakes. Think about the Iraq war, for example. Um, and at least twice now, we've seen uh, the Israeli intelligence services, the Mossad, the Shin Bet, um, make mistakes. One was in the 1973 war, where Arab states launched a surprise attack against Israel on uh, the day of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the, the Jewish uh, calendar. Um, and then this past Saturday's attack. Um, maybe two other points I'll make real quick. First, um, there are charges inside Israel, charges inside Israel, that uh, the Netanyahu coalition government has overly politicized the Israeli intelligence services. I, I can't judge whether that's true sitting where I am in Maine, but I note that the charges are unusual within the Israeli body politic. I've not seen allegations like that before over the last 40 years. Um, that's one point. And then the second point I would make is that um, it's complicated also for the Israelis because they have to watch both what's going on in Gaza, but then they also have to watch these Iranian-backed um, terrorist groups. I've talked about Hezbollah in Lebanon, and there are others. Um, and so um, it's it's actually a pretty challenging array of adversaries that the Israelis must face. Ambassador, uh, as we run short on time here, I, I, I have to ask how this whole thing could spin out of control. 
Uh, Israel doesn't admit to having a nuclear weapon, but we know they do. Uh, how does this spin out of control if, if cooler heads don't prevail? Question. Um, the first thing I want to say is I doubt that it will spin out of control. Obviously, I hope it doesn't. And I'm, I'm not too worried today, Friday morning, that it's going to do so. But the worst case scenario, um, is sort of a black swan scenario, if you will, is that, uh, Israel and Iran come into direct combat. Uh, right now, Iran is waging sort of a proxy war against Israel. And that's not to say that Palestinian uh, organizations don't have agency. Hamas, the terrorist organization Hamas, has agency, and I think it decides a lot of what it does on the ground, those military fighters that we were talking about. Um, but were Israel and Iran to come into direct conflict, um, then I could imagine a situation in which the United States comes in on uh, Israel's side and there are airstrikes against Iran. I think the Iranians are almost certain to retaliate both against the United States. Um, in particular, we have U.S. troops on the ground in eastern Syria and in northern Iraq, um, easily within range of Iranian-backed proxy forces in Syria and in Iraq. Um, the Iranians have uh, ballistic missiles, not nuclear uh, missiles, but ballistic missiles with conventional warheads that can reach Israel um, and can certainly reach the American bases I was just talking about in Syria and Iraq. In fact, Iran hit an American air base directly in uh, uh, Iraq uh, three years ago after the uh, assassination, the American assassination of a big Iranian general. So I can easily imagine that that would sort of spin up um, very quick if it starts. Today, I saw the uh, Iranian foreign minister um, and statements he's made um, from Beirut, and it appeared to me that what the Iranians were trying to do is deter the Americans from getting involved um, in the ground war in Gaza and warning that if the Americans start something, um, the Iranians will respond. Let's hope that um, cool heads prevail in Tehran and that they do not initiate um, fighting, say, between that Hezbollah group in Lebanon I mentioned, um, which I think could trigger an American set of airstrikes against Hezbollah, and then it, it spirals up. Can I ask a very uh, uninformed and yet natural question? Um, you, you talked about African countries earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. What is the difference? I mean, it, if Benjamin Netanyahu was the president of an African country, I'm not sure we'd be giving them $4 billion a year. Um, can you talk about the complexities of our relationship with Israel through history and why our support for them is so steadfast? There are many people here in the United States, many, many, many people. I think the large majority of people here in the United States who have an affinity for uh, Israel on multiple levels. Um, there are, of course, ties between religious communities in the United States and religious communities in Israel. There are direct ties between families in the United States and families in Israel. Um, my wife uh, was also a diplomat, and, and her very first assignment was in Israel uh, between 1990 and 1992. 
And at that time, this is 30 years ago, there were over 70,000 American citizens living in Israel, and I'm sure the number is much greater now. Um, we certainly have seen Americans killed as a result of this, these Hamas terrorist attacks. I think the latest number I've seen is 27, and it appears that some American citizens were taken hostage and taken into the Gaza Strip. So those family connections are really important. Yeah. There is an admiration, I think, among many Americans for Israel's um, democratic process uh, inside Israel. Um, that democratic process, I think, is undergoing strain, just as it is here in our country. Um, and then there's also, I think, um, a great deal of American admiration for Israel's achievements, whether it be in technology or education or its fields of culture. Um, and so the, there, these ties between the United States and Israel are very deep. They're not just government to government. Um, right. They're really between private American citizens and private Israeli citizens. And I don't think we should underestimate that at all. I, I look at the um, remarkably strong support of, uh, for Israel in the American Congress. It's one of the few things people ranging from uh, the left side of the Democratic Party to the, uh, the MAGA Republicans, they seem to all come together on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and last question. Uh, we, we did not get to the fact that there are Americans have been killed in this conflict and there are, it's a little unclear, but there are American hostages that were taken by Hamas. They are alive. They are in the Gaza Strip. That puts the Biden administration in a real hard spot. Again, can you, I know you're retired and not in the region anymore, but if you were there, what, what, tell us what is going on in the White House right now. Listeners should understand the, the complexity of this. We have um, American hostages being held by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And at the same time, we have I've, the number I've seen is at least 500 American citizens living in the Gaza Strip who are Palestinian Americans. And so we have we have people on both sides. We have citizens on both sides of this horrible conflict. It's another part of just how sad and depressing this is. So uh, the Biden administration is, I think, uh, obliged to be as solicitous and concerned about the safety of the Palestinian Americans in Gaza as they are of uh, Israeli Americans um, who are being held hostage in Gaza. And um, the FBI, I saw uh, Attorney General Garak uh, say yesterday that uh, the FBI would be willing to provide help to the Israelis in terms of hostage negotiations and um, the American experience um, negotiating uh, with hostage takers. Not sure if the Israelis will want that or not. It's a, obviously it's a decision uh, for Jerusalem to make, but the United States government, the Biden administration, has made the offer. Um, uh, how we're going to manage um, securing the safety of both Palestinian Americans and um, Israeli Americans uh, held in in Gaza. Oh, that is really going to be threading a needle. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to turn out. Very difficult. Goes back to the importance of uh, if there is a ground assault, um, how that is conducted. Okay. Uh, former Ambassador Robert Ford, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You've given us a great introduction into this incredibly complicated and emotional issue. But uh, again, thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure. 
Okay. I hope you'll, we'll have you back again soon. That was ambassador, former ambassador Robert Ford. He spent a career over there and he knows about what she speaks. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. 